We noticed last week, or it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Beatitudes are these kind of eight, eight or nine statements here at the very beginning of Matthew chapter five that, that Jesus kicks off this famous sermon with. And um, these sayings really are what Jesus kind of painting a picture of the good life. What does it mean to live the good life? And these could be translated, we, we talked about last week, as, as expressions of good fortune. So you could say like, like Jesus is saying, oh, how fortunate are the people who are this way? Um, today we might say something like, oh, lucky, how lucky those people are. Or you can even say it like congratulations. So um, the last week or so, we've seen people graduating. Yesterday we took Caleb through COCC. They had a drive-through graduation, which is the way to do it, by the way. Um, and everybody along the route was cheering him on, saying, congratulations, congratulations. And that's kind of what Jesus was saying. You're like, congratulations to these certain kind of people. The, the way I like to translate it is, um, these people have it made. These are the people who've got it made. Um, so we could read Matthew 5.3, which my English uh, standard version says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We could read it this way. The spiritually impoverished people have got it made because they're inheriting the kingdom of God. Those in spiritual poverty have really got it made. Okay, the, th this would be like going to, like, say, South Africa, to one of the shanty towns or one of the, the townships of South Africa where, where poor people are living in these sheds or cardboard or metal buildings, five or six people in a few square feet. This would be like going to the largest garbage dump in the world outside of Mumbai, India, where little children are digging through the garbage to find food or things to sell so that they can help their family get by. This would be like going to Portland under the Burnside Bridge and looking at all these people in abject poverty and saying, wow, I wish I had it as good as them. This is the kind of, that's the kind of shock that Jesus was delivering when he said the things that he said in the Beatitudes here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You see what the, the Beatitudes do is they don't paint and they don't intend to paint a pretty picture. They paint a picture of people who are categorically opposite of what we think it means to flourish, of what we think it means to live the good life. Okay, so picture, if you will, a stage with a, a huge curtain across the stage. And on the stage are these characters, this, this cast of characters that Jesus is talking about. We've got the, the spiritually impoverished people. We've got the, the mourners, people who are just, they can't stop crying. We've got the meek. We've got the peacemakers. We've got the pure in heart. We've got those who are persecuted. Here they are all on the stage. And you're sitting in the audience looking at them and saying, man, I'm glad I'm not one of them. I'm glad I'm not there up on the stage. And what Jesus is doing as he points out these, these miserable and beat up people, these weak and useless people, these people that seem naive and foolish, that, who seem destitute and downtrodden. Jesus is calling us all to look at them and he says, stop everybody, stop what you're doing and pay attention for these are the ones who've really got it made. I'm so happy for them. And you should want to be like them too. But the thing is that Jesus knows that there's more to the story. Jesus knows that there's a curtain and Jesus knows what's behind the curtain. 
And the last half of each of these sentences in the, in the Beatitudes is a little kind of Jesus pulling, pulling the curtain back a little bit and allowing us to see what's behind it. Let me switch up the metaphor a little bit for you. Imagine the same curtain and, and on your side of the curtain, all that we see is one end of a teeter-totter. Okay, and that teeter-totter is down. It's down as far as it can get. Well, what's going on with the other side of the teeter-totter? that you can't see, it's up, right? And that's the part that we can't see. And it's almost like there's this gigantic cosmic teeter-totter. And as, as much as one side goes down, the other side, the unseen side goes up. And that is what Jesus is talking about. So blessed are the poor in spirit, the, the spiritually impoverished, they've really got it made because they are inheriting the kingdom. What is poverty of spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? As we consider this, I want to give you three descriptions of it. So if you like to take notes, write these down. They're not going to be on the screen. The first is spiritual bankruptcy. The second is humility. And the final thing, the third, is the soil of repentance. So spiritual poverty is spiritual bankruptcy, humility, and the soil of repentance. And we'll walk through each one. So so poverty of spirit is spiritual bankruptcy. And when Jesus uses the word poor here, when he says poor in spirit, he's using a word that mainly refers to physical and material poverty, okay? It's the word that would be used when talking about the, the most destitute people in society, the most needy, the, the beggars, the guys on the street, the guys or girls on the street corner with signs asking for money, the vagrants, the, the homeless, the, the addicts, the one who have no home, they have no income, perhaps they have no health, they've lost their health, they, they have nothing, they don't even have their daily bread, they would have been despised in their culture, they would have been the, the rejected people, those who the rest of society would look down on. They would be used and abused and persecuted and ignored. I had lunch with Scott Graham this week, and as you know, Scott, Megan, and Layla live in South Africa, and um, apartheid ended in South Africa in the 1990s, but as Scott and Megan tell it, if you go there, it's still, uh, the, the, the segregation is still alive and well. So they live in a little town uh, that's, that's very white, and it's very nice. There's coffee shops, there's businesses, there's nice homes, people drive nice cars. But just a little way out of town is a shanty town of thousands of people boxed into very small, uh, just very small square footage with very small houses with nothing, pretty much. And Scott was telling me that every time they, they pull their trash bins out, does you guys do that? You pull your trash bins out to the curb every week, right? Every time they do that, they know that their trash bins will be gone through, that someone will come and go through them, not looking for valuables necessarily, but looking for food. And Scott was saying, and we've got maggots in South Africa. And these people are going through the bins and they're looking for anything they can eat, no matter what's on it, no matter how foul it is, no matter how, how horrible it is, they will take it and they will eat it. And sometimes we'll try to put food out for them. That's not so bad, but we know that that will happen because that's the state of so many people in our, uh, in our proximity. And when you witness sustained poverty like that, and if you witness it for long enough, your heart tends to become hard to it. And when your heart becomes hard to it, what happens to the poor? They become invisible. 
right? When they become invisible, they're nothing. They're despised. They're even subhuman sometimes. Yet scripture, Old and New Testament, you open it up and it looks at to the poor and despised with warmth and, and with compassion. The, the poor in scripture, especially the Old Testament, the Hebrew word was anawim. These are the ones that the, the scripture talks about. Um, D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, says these are the ones who because of sustained, sustained economic privation and social distress have confidence only in God. Why? Because they have nothing else. And Jesus himself showed warmth and compassion to the poor by actually becoming one of them. Jesus wasn't born into a wealthy family. Jesus wasn't born into an aristocratic family. Jesus was born to a teenager who was betrothed to a carpenter who lived in a small backwoods town in Galilee. They were poor people. He was born and lived in poverty. But Jesus, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, isn't just simply referring to physical and material poverty here. He's talking about poverty of spirit. So he's taking all of that imagery, all of the imagery of the poor and the down and and the downcast and the down and out and those with nothing. He's taking all that imagery of extreme privation and affliction and being outcast and he's applying it to the spiritual state of his disciples. Saying all of what it means to be poor is what my disciples have to be in spirit. So what poor in spirit means is spiritual poverty or spiritual impoverishment or spiritual bankruptcy. Now when we hear that title, poor in spirit, we tend to think, I think, that it's simply a state of mind. That we need to view ourselves as lowly and and humble. We need to have a humble posture in life towards God. And we'll see in a minute that that part is certainly true. And it's certainly part of what it means to be poor in spirit. But it's not the whole picture. Jesus is giving a very stark picture. Not just of feelings. Not just of attitudes. Not just of postures. But a but of an objective circumstance, an objective state of being. When he talks about the poor, he's not talking about those who self-identify as poor, even though they're not. He's talking about those who are in an actual state of spiritual poverty. The realization of poverty, understanding it, acknowledging it is key, but it's not disconnected from actual poverty. Jesus isn't saying the worse you feel about yourself, the better you are. Okay, some of us would have that nailed, right? Because we feel really bad about ourselves, but that's not what he's saying. He's actually saying something more like the more honest you are about your actual state, the better. Poverty of spirit is a state of spiritual bankruptcy. The poor in spirit, as D.A. Carson writes, know they can offer nothing and they do not try. You can't truly comprehend this first beatitude, this first sentence of Jesus' teaching. You can't even get past this sentence 
and go on to think that you can live the rest of the sermon in your own power if you truly understand this sentence. If you get, if you, if you comprehend what Jesus is saying here, and if you are actually con- cognizant of your own spiritual poverty and bankruptcy, then the only thing that you can do is to lay down your arrogant presumption that thinks that you can actually read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and think that you can live up to what, God, what Jesus is commanding you in your own strength. So, so it's one of those things where, where Jesus just like right on the entry point just says, hey, I'm just gonna disarm you and let you know that you can't do it. And we have to come and we have to be truly poor in spirit. And if we are truly poor in spirit, we read the Sermon on the Mount and we say to ourselves and we look to God and we say, I can't do it. They're not like the Laodiceans of Revelation 3. I don't know if you remember them or not, but in Revelation 3, Jesus, the risen King Jesus addresses these seven churches in in Asia. And there's one in particular, this church in Laodicea, who've forgotten about their spiritual poverty. They've forgotten about the state that they're in. And here's what Jesus says to them. This is Revelation chapter 3. Verses 17 to 19. It's not going to be on the board, but you're welcome to turn there. Revelation chapter 3, 17 to 19. Jesus says this to them. For you, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Which sounds like a very American thing to say, by the way. I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and so the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. You have nothing, he's telling them, You've forgotten that you have nothing. You, you, you've, you've, you think that you've saved yourself by, by pulling yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps, but you forgot that you're pitiable and wretched and poor and blind and naked, so come to me and buy things that you can't afford and I will give them to you. This echoes the words of the prophet Isaiah that Joe and Sharon read earlier in Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. This is like when my, my little girls invite me to play store with them and I don't have any play money. Well, what happens? Okay, dad, I'll give you some. Here you go. <laughs> they give me the play money and I give it back to them and I buy whatever they're selling, right? But this is what God is saying. Jesus, God is saying to us, you have no money? Well, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk with money and without price. You come and buy it from me and I will give it to you. I will buy it for you. I will give it to you by my grace. But if you think you've got it all already, you'll never come. The offer from Jesus is clear. You are bankrupt. You have nothing, but I offer you everything. 
And it's only when you come to me with empty hands that you will find true riches, true wealth, true abundance. I love the imagery in John chapter 15 that Jesus gives us. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And in verse four, he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We cannot bear fruit, we cannot have spiritual life unless we're connected to Jesus for our sustenance, for everything. This is how he ends verse five. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is shocking That statement is also one of the most life-giving statements in all of scripture. Jesus invites us to be one with him and have his life. And until we are spiritually poor, until one is spiritually poor, they will naturally continue just to continue to write bad checks and, and overdraft their account. They'll spend on credit and buy bigger houses and park brand new cars in the driveway and the entire time they'll be running in the red and they'll put on this veneer of wealth So everybody thinks they've got it together. Everybody thinks you have it, put it together, and really you're further in debt than the most miserable beggar on the street corner. Poverty of spirit comes when God brings us to the end of ourselves. Because the the spiritually poor are those who are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer to God. The second thing that poverty of spirit is, is it's humility. Humility. Humility is that posture of those who honestly recognize their actual spiritual poverty. Spiritual bankruptcy um, for all of us is in full effect, and yet sometimes we can fake the sense, like I just spoke of a minute ago, we can put this veneer on that we're actually wealthy and rich, that we have it together. But humility in those cases does not take root. As, as Charles Spurgeon, the, the great British preacher, said, humility is the proper estimate of oneself. It's having the right view of yourself, the proper view of yourself. It's, it's a deep understanding of your own state of being. And, and humility is how we all ought to live because we're created. Just simply because of the fact that God made us, we are humble creatures, And the thing about us which should make us even more humble than that is our sin. We should be humble because we're creatures, but we should be even more humble because we're sinful. But guess what our sinful brokenness does? In its pride, it says, no, 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 I'm not humble. And pride twists us and turns us. Our sinfulness makes us proud. But, but pride was the original sin. It was the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, which, which originally set humanity against God. So it's fitting that when Jesus gets up and begins to teach that he would address that first sin, he would address pride right out of the gate, that the first beatitude would correspond with the first sin. And he addresses the core sin of pride by elevating the necessity of humility. C.S. Lewis called pride the complete anti-God state of mind. 
The complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is anti-God because it puts our ego in competition with God. It sets ourselves up on a throne in competition with God and pride treats God as irrelevant. Pride treats God as irrelevant or if God is relevant, he's only relevant insofar as he serves me. I love the story in Luke chapter 18. I would encourage you to turn there. It's one of my favorite little parables that Jesus tells. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9, which basically just hits this whole sermon right on the head. Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. It's a short little, a short little parable that Jesus tells. It's one that we often go right by. And he says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And that's the, that's the essence of pride, isn't it? Pride exalts us, it exalts me, it exalts my ego. But I'm not just exalted, I'm comparing myself to everything and everyone else around me. Pride is by nature competitive. Not only am I good, but I'm the best. Not only have I achieved this, but I've done it better than all of you. So here he says, I'm, he says it about themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And pride is bad, but religious pride is even worse. <laughs> when, we, when we couch it in, in religious or spiritual terms, like, man, I'm, just, I'm so much better spiritually than these people over here. Thank you, God, for making me better than them. The tax collector, though, verse 13, stands far off and he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but simply beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is poverty of spirit. Pride of spirit says, I might be a sinner, but I'm not that bad of a sinner. Poverty of spirit won't even look to God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If pride treats God as irrelevant, humility treats God as the only relevant thing in the universe. It, it allows us to see things the way they really are rather than the way our twisted and prideful minds want them to be. And so in a way, poverty of spirit is, is the first step back to God because it's the place where repentance has its first and its only opportunity to take place. So this is the third thing that poverty of spirit is. It's the soil of repentance. In other words, it's the soil, it's the only soil in which repentance grows, you will not turn from your own kingdom. You will not turn from your own power until you realize you have no gas left in the tank, until you know it's futile. You will not turn to the riches of God until you've realized your complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy. Now, for some of us, this, this descent into spiritual poverty will be dramatic, it will be a deep dive to the bottom of the pit. 
And some of you have been there. You've been at the bottom. Some of you are there right now or quickly approaching it. It's a, it's a place where we feel unworthy, where we feel like God can't forgive me. I've done all this stuff. I, I, I've dug my own pit. I'm unforgivable. I'm unredeemable. But just getting to the bottom of the pit, brothers and sisters, that's not enough because we can be just as proud at the bottom of the pit as we were at the top. And sometimes we're content staying in that pit that we've dug for ourselves and honestly will remain there unless and until we have the ability to look up. That's why I love the the story of the prodigal son. Here's a kid who dug his own pit as as far as he could and then finally it was when he came to his senses and looked up and realized who his father was that he was able to repent. You can get to the bottom of the pit and still be proud. You don't don't want anybody to help you. So you're down at the bottom of this pit trying to build a ladder to get out of it. Or you, you seek attention in your misery and brokenness. As C.S. Lewis wrote, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Humility or or poverty of spirit looks at God and not ourselves. The only only cure for pride, whether you're on the mountaintop or in the bottom of the pit, the only cure for pride is to look to God because when you see God, everything else, including yourself, is put into perspective. Now, Jesus connects at the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, connects poverty of spirit with spiritual inheritance. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt and humble and repentant because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he connects poverty with true Wealth, And we should notice that there's a, there's a joyful irony here because mankind lost access to God and his kingdom through pride and God graciously gives us the kingdom back again through humility. And don't miss the fact that any humility that we have, any humility that you have comes on the heels of Jesus' own humility who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but did what? He made himself nothing. He took the form of the servant. He was born in the likeness of men and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself for us. And that's how we gain a kingdom. It's through humility. No one who lacks poverty of spirit will inherit God's kingdom. Repentance is required to inherit the kingdom, but repentance only grows in the soil of spiritual poverty. And and what is repentance? What is repentance but allegiance to the king, turning to the king? And when we pledge our allegiance to the king, he gives us a kingdom. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven only becomes a reality for those who in poverty of spirit repent and give their allegiance back to the king. 
So perhaps you would allow me to summarize the first beatitude in this way. Those who come to God with nothing are the ones who truly have everything. Those who come to God with nothing are, those, are the ones who truly have everything. And this leaves us really with three things to walk out of here with this morning. And I would say they are these. Repentance, dependence, and hope. And we've already, we've already spoken of repentance. Repentance is turning to God. It's simply acknowledging that we have nothing. We have nothing to give him. We have nothing by which we can save ourselves. All our attempts to build our own kingdoms have failed. And we turn to him and pledge our allegiance to the king. That's repentance. And that flows out of poverty of spirit. The second thing is dependence. Poverty of spirit should take us to a place of absolute dependence upon God. Because it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we find Jesus as he's promised to be for us. Only when we look up are we able to see God. So, so there's a reason that one of the core values of our church is radical dependence. Have you heard that before? Sounds pretty radical. Radical dependence, complete dependence, utter dependence, because we know that the kingdom belongs to all those who have died to their self-sufficiency, who have died to, to their ability to run their own lives. And because of that, they're absolutely dependent on God, which means that they come to God in prayer, that they're constantly be, being upheld by him and, and fed by him and given strength by him because they know that without him they have nothing. So dependent prayer is a key marker of poverty of spirit. Are you poor in spirit? I don't know. Do you pray? It's a good litmus test. Are you dependent on God in prayer? That's how you tell you're poor in spirit. Finally, I want to end this with hope. Repentance, dependence, and hope. Because poverty of spirit is a really difficult pill to swallow if we understand it. it. Oftentimes, when we get to a place of being poor in spirit, it's because God has done something in our lives that's pretty painful, almost excruciating. Sometimes we could even call it traumatic, and it might feel like God is distant. It might feel like God has abandoned you. I sat with a young man this week who, who basically was, was laying out his last year and he feels like it's been a, a long road into, into spiritual poverty. And it would be easy for us to, to come alongside someone who's wrestling with pain, with suffering, with, with darkness, with feeling like God is distant. It'd be easy to come alongside them and say, don't worry, things will get better. You've got what it takes. Just keep plugging along. You're going to get through this. But when we do that, I think we actually miss the point. When we, when we offer that kind of, kind of advice, it misses what God may actually be doing with those who are suffering. Because Jesus says that spiritual impoverishment is actually a fortunate place to be. It's actually a good place to be. It's actually a blessed place to be. So, so what if we were to switch lenses a little bit and look through this Look through dark times with a different lens. Look, through, look at suffering through a different lens. And look at these things as gifts from God which are bringing us to the end of ourselves. 
Perhaps we can look at what feels like spiritual abandonment and instead identify it as love. God, your father, loves you. He loves you. If there's anything else, if anything else in the scripture is unclear, be clear about this one thing, that God, your father, loves you. Why else then would he bring you to a place of absolute dependence on you? He loves you. He wants you to be absolutely dependent on you, which means that he might take away those things that you are holding on to for comfort, for security, to feel like you've got it together. He may come and say, you know what? I need to take those away so that you can know me and be dependent on me alone. He loves you so much, he will do anything to kill your pride because your pride is killing you. But killing pride leaves scars, much like surgery leaves scars. It leaves you with a limp. And only those with scars or or those with a limp like Jacob in the Old Testament, only those are the people who will inherit the kingdom of God. In the end, it's actually the people with nothing who have any hope at all. Because they have the potential to have Everything, which is perhaps what Jesus meant when he said stuff like this. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So if I could offer you one thing to end this morning, it would be this. Take heart. Your father loves you. Because in the darkness, there is hope. And in poverty, there is promise. Let's pray. Father, we do come this morning, and my prayer for every single person in this room is that we would know that our Father loves us, that our Heavenly Daddy loves us and cherishes us and wants the best for us. And sometimes that means that we walk a road of suffering, and absolutely that means we come to the end of ourselves. So Father, this morning, would you help us to see and to know and to understand and feel our spiritual poverty, God, that we would hold our hands open and and nothing in our hands, knowing that nothing in our hands we bring and only to you, Jesus, only to your cross can we cling. And so we come to you as the one who has paid it all, the one who by his grace buys us bread to eat and water to drink and gives us sustenance and gives us life. We look to you, Jesus, today. And we know our brokenness and our poverty and look to the only one who can give us true riches. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.